If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves now beginning in chapter 5 as we look continually at Christ's authority as the living gospel. Christ's authority as the living gospel. As we do in our study, I want us to just take a moment, bow before the Lord, ask Him to attend to our time this morning. Father, we are grateful that we can open Your Word, that we can read Your Word, that we can study Your Word, and that You have given us the Spirit in order to help us understand and lead us in truth. So Lord, this morning as we hear from You, may it be just as it is, Your words, the words of God, and may it impact our lives as you see fit, and we might put it into practice. All to your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our study of Luke has been rather fascinating for me. It has been fascinating in several ways. I don't want to catalog them all, but one of the most fascinating things is that I am continually thrust back in my study each and every week to the place where I, I see myself in the sandals of Theophilus. You remember who Theophilus is from chapter 1. He is that friend of Luke's, the one to whom Luke has been writing this account of the practical history of Jesus Christ. And Luke is doing that so that Theophilus will have a certainty that he will be certain about the things that he has been taught. And I think about that often because no doubt, by way of implication in those very words in Luke chapter 1, Theophilus knows some things about Jesus. He has been taught about Jesus. He, he has heard people around him recount what they have heard about Jesus. He has heard about the miracles that have taken place through Jesus. He probably even heard from Luke himself at previous times about what Jesus did when he was on the earth throughout his entire ministry. And at times, Theophilus most likely had questions that he could not reconcile in his own earthly mind. Things about Jesus, things about who Jesus was, things about what Jesus did that seemed to cause his mind to wonder. And so Luke is writing him to hear these things again, and, and we are here, we are reading these things like the officeless, hearing about Jesus, and it is adding foundational strength in the area of certainty. Foundational strength for us about the things that we have been taught. I told you that oftentimes it thrusts me back into his sandals, and so every time I'm studying through the passage that we're going to go to on a, on a Lord's Day, I'm thrust back into that place of, of realizing that what I'm looking at and what I'm studying is, is helping to add that foundational strength to the things that I have been taught about Jesus things that I'm learning about Jesus. It's helping me to evaluate what I know, to keep 
that which is exact and that which is certain and to jettison those things which are not exact truth. We have already been taught that Jesus is the promised Messiah. We we know that He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah that spoke about the one who would come and who would be born of a virgin. We have heard testimony from the voice of God Himself publicly declaring Jesus to be His only Son in whom He is well pleased. We were eyewitnesses through the words of Luke in recounting Jesus' temptation by the devil himself in the wilderness, and we watched as Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father and was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit so that he might be tempted. And how Jesus is an example to us in how he was living in submission to the will of the Father in overcoming the schemes of the evil one as he himself submitted himself to the Word of God in every way. All according, of course, to the power of the Spirit. He has shown his inherent power over the forces of darkness and disease We have seen Him cast out demons and we have seen Him cure every disease. And so, the Word of God has shown itself to be sharper than any two-edged sword that convicts the hearers of their own sin. We have seen Jesus as He goes back to His own hometown of Nazareth and how He preaches there and teaches in the synagogue and some have believed Him and and most have been simply curious about Him, but many have just rejected Him and even those who knew Him most wanted Him dead. In spite of the fact that Jesus has inherent power, which has authenticated all of His claims, and that has been seen by all of them. Jesus' inherent power has been on display as He's healed all of those who were brought to Him. And last Lord's Day, we we looked at that passage, and and after a long, lonely, or long night of ministry in chapter 4 and verse 41, Jesus goes away to spend time in communion with the Father. Verse 42 says, When the day came, He departed and went to a lonely place. Jesus needed time away. He needed time to spend with the Father. He needed that communion with the Father to refresh His very own self. Now here we are as we come to chapter 5. Some time has passed now. We don't know how long, how much time has passed, but, but some time has passed and The power of Jesus and His authority as the living gospel is once again on display. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Here in these verses, I want us to see the character of Jesus Christ once again on display as He calls His disciples to Himself. And we're going to see eight different aspects of the work of Jesus Christ on display. Eight different aspects of the Word of Christ 
on display. Let me read this text for us. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Luke says, Now it came about that while the multitude were passing around, uh, pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. He sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and to help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You understand there have always been skeptics when it comes to Jesus. Many, many skeptics have removed the reality of Jesus, even declaring that he's not a real man. They, they place him in the category of being just a myth. Jesus, this one who, who many talk about, this one who has done so many things, he's just a myth. And even of those that accept some form of a real Jesus, many are skeptical of his divinity. They say Jesus was a real human, but he wasn't God. And so they accept him as natural man, but they deny anything about him being supernatural. And because they deny the supernatural, then the Jesus they claim to know is only an earthly good man. He's just a human who has some kind of higher moral character, but he isn't God. Someone to follow as maybe a moral example for your own behavior, but not one in which you can trust for salvation. Luke is here to show us that while Jesus was a real and full man, he is much more than just that. He is God in the flesh. He is the God who has come to change lives. In fact, He is here to save souls from the judgment that is to come. Now this text introduces us to this fishing trip. I have fished 
in my lifetime. I fished as a kid. I've had some limited fishing as an adult. Some of you are avid fishermen, and so when the word fishing comes up, you get all these thoughts in your mind. I know a few things about fishing, and if you are a fisherman, you know this. It is called fishing. It is not called catching. Fishing is fishing. Fishing is just that. It's fishing because it's difficult to catch. Well, Jesus is going to reveal to all of us that just as he has the power over the demonic realm and the power to cast out any disease, he also has the power to change fishing into catching. Jesus is a catcher, not a fisher. Notice the scene. Notice the scene. Verses 1 to 3. Now it came about while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them, and they're washing their nets. He gets into one of the boats, which is Simon's, asks him to put out a little way from the land. And he sits down, and he begins teaching the multitudes from the boat. So some time has passed. We know that because verse verse 1 says, now it came about. That's just a simple phrase to mean that, There's been some time that has gone on since Jesus was in the synagogue in the previous uh, narrative portion that Luke shared us for us at the end of chapter 4. Some time has gone by in that white space between verse 44 as he's preaching in the synagogues of Judea and this event. Jesus is doing what he came to do. I must go and preach the kingdom of God, he said in verse 43. That's what he has been doing. The people are hearing him speak. Everywhere he goes, they are shocked at what he is saying. They are convicted by what he is saying. They are stunned by what he is saying. Why? Because he is claiming to be the Messiah. He is claiming to be the very one who is the promised one to come, and he has been showing them that his message is true by what he is doing. God, in his gracious mercy, is authenticating even the message of Jesus Christ by his very miracles that he is carrying out. And so with each passing day, of course, as news travels, the crowds grow. And now here they are pressing in around Jesus, northern Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. When it says the Lake Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee. And so this is the first aspect of Jesus' saving and calling work. What is it? They are pressing around him, notice, and they are listening to the Word of God. Jesus gets in the boat goes out just a little bit offshore, and it says in verse 3, he is teaching them. He is teaching them. Teaching what? Teaching the Word of God. That's the first aspect of calling and saving. This is Jesus' first, Luke's 
magnifying glass, if you will, on the reality of what Jesus is doing while he is preaching. He is calling people. He is saving. It's the saving work of Jesus Christ. How? Through the teaching of his word. Jesus is teaching the word of God. Now think about that for a moment. Right? Put yourself in the scene. You're standing there on the side of the sea. No one is carrying around their own personal New Testament or Old Testament Bible. The New Testament isn't even around yet being written. The Old Testament was only in the synagogues because all they wrote on was parchment. No one had their personal Bible with them. Jesus isn't carrying around a copy of the Old Testament with him. And yet, here it is, Jesus teaching and they are listening to the Word of God. Why? Because He is God. In other words, when Jesus spoke, the people were literally hearing God speak. This is God speaking to him, to them. And what was He speaking about? He's speaking about Himself. He is speaking about the Gospel. He is speaking about the fact that He is the fulfillment of the promise of God the Father. He was preaching that the blind would receive sight. And He's not simply saying the physically blind would receive sight, although He was indeed doing that in authenticating the reality that the spiritual blind would receive sight. He's preaching that the lame would walk, and the physical lame certainly were receiving the ability to walk in a miraculous and complete way, and yet all of that was confirming the reality that the spiritually lame would walk. It's preaching that there would be freedom to the captives held in bondage. Freedom, spiritual freedom. He's preaching forgiveness and eternal life. He's saying things like what we hear the Apostle John record in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus saying, He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is what the Word of God says. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus is preaching. And so this is the first aspect of Jesus calling sinners to himself for salvation and for service. Teaching the Word of God. Why? Because faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. Well, Jesus is standing by the lake. And Jesus sees these two boats on the edge of the lake. The fishermen had gotten out of their boats and they are washing their nets. We know whose boat it is that Jesus gets into because the text tells us whose boat it is. This is Peter. Presumably his brother Andrew would have been with him. Luke doesn't say that here, but presumably he would have been. They lived there together. They worked together. And of course, James and John are there, as we understand from the further part of the passage, that they came to help him. They were partners in this 
because even it says in verse 10, and so James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So you have this this small flotilla, this small fishing business of these at least four guys, probably had some other deckhands that helped them when they went out fishing. And they had spent all night fishing with nets. That's no small net. These were not small fishing nets. They would have been very large nets. And we might turn on the History Channel, turn on the Discovery Channel, watch some fishing show that does net fishing, and they have this great mechanism that pulls the nets into the fish as their drag nets are weighed out in the ocean. And they just turn the switch, and the conveyor belts start to go, and the fishing nets start to come onto the boat, and all the fish starts to pour out. Well, that's not what they had. These were large nets, large drag nets for fishing. They didn't have mechanical engines to pull in the nets. So it would have been backbreaking work for them to pull in the nets. They were doing it all night long. That's when they fished. And as those nets would become waterlogged, filled with all kinds of other sea creatures that were in the lake. And on this particular night, they were not catching fish. Whether it was just a bad night of fishing or whether God in His sovereign hand had just ceased to let the fish go into the net because God knew what He was going to be doing the next day. We don't know that, but for all purposes, all it simply says is they were not catching fish. And so here they are, they're prepping their equipment for the next night's work. Jesus, being pressed by the crowd, gets into the boat, asks Him to put out a little bit from the shore, sits down, as all teachers did when they taught, and He begins and continues to teach the people. Peter, obviously and presumably, would have been in the boat with him. It's his boat. And I think it's right to assume that then Peter, being in the boat, this boat would have probably been about 20 feet long, maybe 8 foot wide, would have been in the boat hearing what Jesus was saying to the people. He may not have been fully paying attention to all of it as he attends to the chores to get his boat ready for the next day, But he is there, and surely he is hearing some of what God is saying, even in spite of the fact that he's tired, he's exhausted from the whole night before. Sun is beating down on him. He's tired. Whatever the case, Jesus gets Peter's attention. Notice verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. This is the second aspect of Jesus' calling and saving work. First, he he teaches the Word. This is the second aspect. This is the command to Peter. Put out into deep water and let down your catch. This is a divine command. An imperative in the grammar and in, in the original language, it's, it's a it's a command. It's Listen, I'm not asking a question. I'm telling you what I want done. This is, this is what God does. This is how God speaks. He speaks the truth, and in that truth, there are commands for us to do what He says. The Word speaks, and it speaks in imperatives. This is what you must do. Jesus commands Peter to obedience. Now, Peter is only thinking naturally. He hasn't yet considered the supernatural. He's face to face with God in the flesh, God in his boat, 
And the omniscient God is being displayed through even what he is saying, and he has been on display even in Peter's mother-in-law, with his mother-in-law the day before, days before. But Peter is still thinking naturally. Now, follow me here as I think about this. First, the Word of God is taught. The Word of God commands obedience. And when we are simply thinking naturally, what happens? We begin to thirdly, this is the third aspect, we begin to rationalize. We begin to rationalize. Notice verse 5. And Simon answered and said, Master, that's a term of respect, a term of honor. Master, Lord, that's the idea. We worked hard all night and caught nothing. You can stop right there. That's the rationalization. We worked, you're asking me to do something that's rather crazy. You're asking me to do something that makes no logical sense. Peter is being very respectful. Master, I know you're a teacher. I know you got all kinds of things to say. You've said a whole lot. Maybe in my tiredness, I, I didn't hear it all. I understand your authority. And yet, here is Peter rationalizing from a human perspective as to why it's not a good idea to follow what Jesus has said. Maybe, maybe part of Peter's rationalization came from the fact that he's a professional fisherman. Peter knew his job. Peter had been on the water his whole life. This is what Peter did for a living. Jesus is just a carpenter. What does a carpenter know about fishing? It would be like you and I who have never done a stitch of basketball telling an NBA basketball player how to shoot a shot. Pardon me, youngster. I'm a professional. You're not. Now, that's kind of the idea going on here. He doesn't know. In the supernatural sense, he's not thinking that way. And so, in his mind, as a professional fisherman... Peter may have been thinking, listen, don't you understand that the best time to catch fish is at night when they're all at the surface eating the bugs? Don't you know that? But Peter knows that Jesus is more than just a carpenter. He, he's got that. He knows. He, he healed people. He's healed his mother-in-law in a moment. So Peter's got that floating around in his head. And so from his rationalization comes number four, his reluctancy to obey. Notice verse five. But, middle of verse five, but at your bidding, at your request, that's the word. Notice how Peter kind of adjusts the command to simply a request. At your request, I'll let down the nets. They had just cleaned the nets, or they were in the process of cleaning the nets. I mean, this is a busy day. They need to get some rest for the, before the night is, comes again. And I think we can sympathize with Peter, can't we? Think about your own life. You open the Word of God. You read the Word of God. 
Word of God is demanding of you. It is commanding you through what you are hearing, the sense of the implications of what it is saying or weighing heavy upon you, and you begin to rationalize. You rationalize from a human perspective as to all the reasons why it's not possible. It isn't even possible that we could do what you're asking. But you know it's God's Word. You, you know you've heard some things about the Word of God. You've heard from the Scriptures in the past. You've read them in the past. You're sure that it's God saying what is being said here. You have no doubt about what He is commanding. And so reluctantly you acquiesce to what is being commanded. Okay. All right, Lord. I'll do what you ask. When? When we obey, even reluctantly, God in His graciousness, our eyes are clearly open. We see the power of God on display in what He does. Notice verse 6 and 7. And when they had done this, Notice it's not just Simon. Simon's the he's the ringleader, he's controlling, he's the job foreman, he's the boss. Okay, we'll do what you do asked us. And when they had done this, when when they had set the nets out again, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, their nets began to break, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come help them, and they come and fill both the boats so that they begin to sink. This is the omniscient and omnipotent power of God on display. This is the fifth aspect in our list. The omnipotent and omniscient power of God on display. The Word of God is taught. Jesus is teaching the Word of God. The Word commands. Rationalization happens in the heart oftentimes, why we cannot do it. Reluctant obedience takes place, and the power of God is seen. When these men, Peter, reluctantly do what God says, the nets are filled to such a capacity that they begin to break. They can't even handle the blessing that God pours on them. Nothing like this has ever happened before. They've never seen anything like this. A catch like this was unheard of in their day. No one catches that many fish in one catch and so quickly. But the omniscient Lord knew where the fish were. Jesus knew where the fish were. Why? Because He put them there. In fact, He put so many fish there that when they brought them to the boats, they began to sink. Now, I don't know about you. I've been on big boats and small boats. And I've seen boats with a lot of weight on them, and they do not sink. This, beloved, is omnipotent power. When I grew up as a kid, I, I, I used to have a swimming pool in the backyard, and I was always trying to hold small balls and things like that, and see how far I could hold them down on the water and let them go, and they'd come flying out of the water just from the little air that was displacing the water there. That's the principle that, that happens in, in boating. 
right? There's a displacement that takes place and the pressure holds that boat up. Think of how many fish it must take for a boat that's eight feet wide, 20 feet long to begin to sink from the weight of all the fish. Some of you fishermen are going, man, I'd love to have that day. The weight of the fish would have been enormous. And these, these are Jewish men They knew who created the world. They knew who created all that's in the world. They knew who controls the world. They knew Psalm 104 that we read this morning. They knew what the psalmist declared about who God was. They understood that in their own hearts and that the Lord has made all things. He is the one who controls all things. And here it's happening before their very eyes. The Word of God speaks. The commands come. We rationalize. We reluctantly obey. The power of God is displayed. It is displayed in our life. It is displayed in others' lives as God changes them. It is displayed in the circumstances of life as God orchestrates all of that for our good and His glory. It is all clearly there. We see it clearly. And it is the kindness of God before our eyes and what happens? What happens? Well, if we're, we're thinking in the, in the way that God is driving us, if we're thinking now in a supernatural sense, we do exactly what Peter did. Number six, realization. This is what happens. But when Peter saw that, He fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, because I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter gets it. Peter gets it. Truth of the Word of God has reached its mark. Peter realizes he's face to face with God. And his response is the response of every person realizing that God is before them when they open the Word of God. This is the Word of God before us. Peter falls on his knees. Jesus is sitting in the boat, not surprised at all the fish they're catching, not surprised at their struggle, not surprised, not even fearful that the boat is beginning to be filled up to its sides with fish and water is starting to come in. Peter falls to his knees, understanding his guilt. This is what happens when we realize we have God before us. We we stop rationalizing. We stop being reluctant. We understand our guilt and we repent. Peter is fully aware of who Jesus is here. He's fully aware of what happens with Jesus. He knows he's before deity, and he understands that deity sees him. After the ministry of Jesus Christ, after Jesus has risen from the dead, Peter's going to have another 
boating incident with Jesus. Peter goes back up to the lake where he gets back into the fishing, does some more fishing, and Jesus is on the shore. They don't recognize him at the moment. They ask him, do you have any fish? They say, no, we don't have any fish. Peter recognizes Jesus, and Peter doesn't fall on his knees. Repenting, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. He wants so badly to be with Jesus, he doesn't say, depart from me. For I am a sinful man. Now think about this. If Jesus knows where the unseen fish are, then what does Jesus know about you? If Jesus knows where to tell Peter to put his net so he can catch all the fish that he's ever caught in his own life, then what does Jesus know about Peter? any wonder that Peter said, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And it wasn't just Peter, verses 9 and 10, for amazement seized him and all his companions because of the catch they had taken. Right? They're seeing all this fish, the big reality of what Jesus said. Here's a guy who doesn't know anything about fishing, seemingly, and yet he's told us what to do, and we've done it, and look, it's what's happened. His message is now authenticated by the reality of his omniscience on display. And James and John are there as partners. So these are obviously the ones that they signaled to in verse 7 to come and help them. Their boat's sinking too. They're all shocked by the moment. All of this is going on. And they're all seemingly, at least from the context, seemingly just like Peter. We are in the presence of God. They fall down on their knees begging for God to have mercy on them. Listen, beloved, this is the response of understanding when it is God that you are facing. Genesis chapter 18, verse 27, Abraham was in the presence of God and he said that he was dust and ashes. Job 42, verses 5 and 6, Job said this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah 6. Verse 5, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Listen, beloved, when we truly understand who Jesus is, When we understand that we are face to face with God, Jesus Christ and His authority and His power because of who He is, our soul will flood with a sense of our own evil and the realization of our personal consequences for our sin. This is what's happening with Peter. He has heard the teaching of Jesus He has heard Jesus command him to do what 
Jesus wants him to do. He has rationalized it in his own human mind on a human level. He has reluctantly stepped out, trusting what Jesus said. He has seen the power of God on display, and he has realized he is in deep trouble. This leads us to aspect number seven, mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Verse 10, second half, Jesus says to Simon, do not fear. Do not fear. Man, I'll tell you what, when you are frightened beyond measure, those are the best words to hear, aren't they? Do not fear. Out of his own realization of his sinfulness before God, all Peter wants to do is send Jesus away. I am too sinful. You cannot be near me. You shouldn't be around me. I am a sinful man. I am no good. I cannot be around you. I should not be around you. All Peter wants to do is send Jesus away, and yet all Jesus wants to do is to draw Peter closer. I love that. Don't fear, Peter. Jesus, go away. I'm too sinful for you. Go away from me. You don't know my whole life. Really? I know where the fish are, Peter. I'm a sinful man. I, 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 you can't be near me. Depart from me. Go away. No, you're not, Peter. Don't fear. You're not too unclean for me because I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to bring you to me. I am here, Peter, to change you. I'm here to change you. Ah, beloved, aren't those great words for us to hear? You're not too sinful. You're not too damaged. You're not too broken. We sin and, and, and we sense alienation from God in our heart. The, the guilt is crushing. And all we want to do is run, run from God. We, we don't want to be near God. We want to get some distance as if that's even possible. We think God never would want us. We're too unclean for God. We're full of sin and God says, fear not. Do not fear. Realize that's the second command Peter heard. The first one is, Peter, trust me. And after all the rationalization and reluctant obedience and realization, this is the second command. Peter, come to me. Fear not. At our point of deepest shame, Jesus desires reconciliation with us. Don't fear. I want you with me. Reminds me of Psalm 51, verse 17. David's words as he's confessing his sin before God, his sin that was heinous, the sin of murder, the sin of adultery, all combination of secrecy and all kinds of things going on. David sees his own sin 
And he says in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is Peter at the very moment when Peter was overcome by his own sin. And all the rest of the men are in the same condition, shocked, stunned. Jesus doesn't push him away and say, man, you guys are just a bunch of dummies. You guys will never get it. I can't do anything with you. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus doesn't push them away. Jesus draws them closer. Isn't that the sense of Romans 2.4? Isn't that what Roman, Paul was saying to, to, in his writing to those in Rome? He's saying, listen, it is the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. We understand God's kindness when we see our sinfulness and we know what we deserve. We are sinful people, Lord. Depart from us, we're sinful, and yet we see your grace and mercy to draw us near, and repentance flows. We deserve the judgment of God, but God extends mercy and grace. Well, it's from mercy and grace that we can get the last aspect. Notice verse 10 and 11. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the last aspect, following Jesus. Following Jesus. The more we know our sin, and the more we know of Jesus, the more we will willingly follow him. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12 says. The more the, the Scriptures look at us, reveal to us exactly who we are, and the more we see Jesus Christ and we understand the reality and the certainty of all that we've been taught, the more we're willing to just say, I'm following Jesus. I'm going to go with Him. Don't fear. From now on, Peter, you will be catching men. Don't fear, Peter. Why? Because I am changing you completely. I'm changing you completely. Thriving fishing business. Partners. Probably the biggest fishing business on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And at that very moment, the boats return to the land. They drop the nets and say, see you guys, we're out of here. We're going with Jesus. The free gift of salvation and calling of Jesus upon your life. Clearly, will cost you your hold on everything in your life. Peter, you will still be a fisherman, Peter. You're still going to be fishing. But now, instead of catching fish, in order to kill fish, you're going to be catching men alive. The reality is, the, the, the uh, 
grammar here in the original language in verse 10, when Jesus makes this statement, it's you will be catching alive men. And so there's, a, there's an implication there just in the grammar and how it's stated that, that these are the people whom God has chosen to save. They are alive men. They are the ones whom God is drawing to himself. They, he is bringing them. They are alive and they are going to hear the gospel and he's going to be catching them. Teaching, commanding, rationalizing, reluctance, power, realization, mercy and grace, following Jesus. That's Jesus' calling and saving work on display. It's interesting, Peter would have a a big, big fishing trip again. This time with the new flock of people. Acts chapter 2, it's recorded for us by Luke. Peter is preaching. It's Pentecost. People are confused about what's happening. There's this large ingathering of people. They're all hearing the word of God in their own language in a miraculous way. And they're wondering what's happening. And so Peter begins to preach to them just like he saw Jesus do. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Acts, he stands up with the eleven and he raises his voice and declares to them and Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. Pay attention to what I'm saying, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third third hour of the day. But this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. Then he quotes Joel. About what God had said would come through Jesus Christ and that the Spirit would come upon men. And he says, men of Israel, verse 22, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders. You see, God was, Jesus was speaking and God through Jesus Christ being God was committing and doing miracles and wonders and signs which God's prepared or performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. It was authenticated to you. You saw it. You know his word was true. You know it was. This man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And listen, God was orchestrating all the circumstances. God was doing all the things behind the scenes that he nailed to so that you nailed him to the cross. He's nailed by the hands of godless men who put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Why? Because it's impossible for him to be held by the power of death. And he quotes once again from the Old Testament in Psalm 16. So he says, Brother and I, in verse 29, Brother and I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David and both who died and was buried and in his tomb today. And so because he, has, he was a prophet, he knew that God swore to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne. 
And he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He's not in Hades. He's not suffering decay. This Jesus God raised again to which we are all witnesses. He was exalted to the right hand of God and he's been received by the Father so that the promise of the Holy Spirit has been poured out. That's what you see and what you hear. Know for certain, he says, house of Israel, know this for certain that God has made both Jesus Lord and Christ whom you crucified. What happened? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do then? You see, they're at that place that Peter was. They, they're face to face with God from the preaching of God's Word. What are we going to do? We are sinful men. What should we do? And Peter says to them exactly what Peter did. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So he goes on preaching and testifying, explaining to them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. They were saved. How many? What a catch. They had received the word, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I wonder, the Bible doesn't answer this. My mind just goes down these curious trails sometimes. I wonder how many fish there were. I wonder how many fish that are normally caught in the Sea of Galilee, what their average weight is, and how many fish it would have been to sink those boats. I don't know. Maybe one of you math wizards can figure that out for us. But here, Peter fishes again, throws out his net through the preaching of the word, and God puts 3,000 souls in the net. And so the people do that. And they're together and they're serving God and they're doing what Christians do and followers of Jesus Christ do. And day by day, verse 46, they're with one mind in the temple and they're breaking bread from house to house. They're taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart. They're praising God and having favor with all the people. And what is the Lord doing? And the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. God is just throwing the net through their words and through their testimony and through their lives, and God is drawing in the fish. Word is preached. The command is given. Hearts of the people begin to rationalize. Reluctantly, some believe. The power of Christ moves upon them so that they see their sin and their guilt, and Jesus draws them to himself by his mercy and grace. And they begin to follow him. What a catch. What a catch. Jesus is calling and saving his people alive. Jesus is more than a fisherman, isn't he? Jesus is a catcher. 
those who recognize their sinfulness, those who embrace Jesus as God, those who turn from their sin, he forgives their sin and removes their fear of judgment. And he sends them out to catch others alive for his kingdom. This is what's happening. Theophilus, you need to know with certainty who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who calls sinners to himself. Let's pray together. Father, what uh, an account. Certainly we could spend a year of weeks here just in these words to glean all the little bits of fruit that are there, all the nuggets, the gems, the richness of who you are. It's not about Peter. It's not about the boats. It's about you, the power of you, the omniscient, holy, omnipotent, righteous, just God who knows about us in such an intimate way and yet you want us with you. You draw us to yourself. You say, do not fear. Do not fear. Lord, I pray this morning that whatever it is you're impressing upon our heart from this passage by way of its implications in our various lives, Lord, we would respond to as we're challenged to serve you more, we would do that. As we're challenged to share the Word of God more, we would do that. As we're challenged to look at our sin rightly and confess it rightly, we would do that. Challenged in our life to not run from you, but run to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are, showing us clearly your power. May you be honored through it all, Lord. May we be nothing because you are everything. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen.